Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Tonight we'll be in Psalm 110. Moving along in our study through the Psalms. And uh, it was pretty awesome that uh, we sang, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and you know, to worship his holy name. Tonight we're going to sing, we're going to uh, study a, a few praise Psalms tonight. And so, you know, we've studied a few of them before. These are a few more. Just Psalms that speak of praising the Lord, reasons for praising the Lord, and then, um, and then just encouraging us uh, to worship God for who He is. Psalm 110 is a messianic psalm. And it's pretty obvious that it is so. It's uh, in the title, it says it's written by David. And although there are times throughout the Psalms when authorship is, is maybe in doubt or could be debated, I look at this Psalm and I see that, number one, it's the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament. And number two, Jesus specifically referred to this psalm as being authored by David. So I think the authority there is, uh, is that G if Jesus said it, I'm, I'm going to believe it. So the authorship of this psalm is without question. I consider the fact that it's the most quoted Old Testament chapter in the New Testament, considering the brevity of this psalm, and, and, and it's astounding that it's been quoted so many times. It's probably because the subject matter of this psalm is so important, and it's multifaceted. It includes, it includes obviously, the prophecy of the coming Messiah. It includes Jesus as our high priest, Jesus as our king, and Jesus as our Lord. And so those subjects... Put together would tend to uh, give it a, a great weight and significance, so that even the old, the New Testament um, writers would quote this Old Testament psalm, and it speaks definitely of the coming one, Jesus Christ. So, in jumping in in verse one, a psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So here David we see right away is referring, is actually affirming the deity of Christ in that first verse. 
And then he's sort of letting us in to a, a really neat exchange that he was witness to between the Father and the Son. David heard in the Spirit the voice of Yahweh, the first Lord in that verse, the all caps, it should be in your Bibles, all caps, speaking to Adonai, the second Lord, which is, which is, which is just uh, capital L-O-R-D. And note the capitalization because in our Bibles, that is the way that most translations will differentiate between Yahweh, which is that covenant name of God the Father given to Moses at Mount Sinai, and Adonai, which is often how Jesus is referred to. But I, what I love about that one verse is the beautiful fellowship that we see between the individual persons of the Godhead. And, you know, it's a mystery to us. It really is. You know, we, we've gone over and over and we've debated it and we've questioned it and we've doubted it. The Trinity is such a difficult concept for us to wrap our brains around. And this particular verse sort of, it may, sometimes it may add to that, to that confusion, but it shows the, the unity of God and yet the distinctiveness of each of the persons of the Godhead. And think about David, how privileged he was to sort of be present at this secret conversation between the Father and the Son. The Father was conveying something to the Son that, that we need to always remember. And that is that since His earthly mission was complete, in that He went to the cross to pay the sin debt, He could now sit at the right hand of the Father awaiting the final victory. So this psalm brings us from that prophecy right to the end of human history and even into eternity. You know, when we, again, we think about the significance of this psalm, we shouldn't wonder why it's quoted so often. The enemies of God, as it says in that first verse, till I make your enemies your footstool, the enemies of God will be finally under his feet. Amen? When he gains the victory in full at the end of time. In Revelation 20, it, it speaks about that. In verses 10 through 15, it says, And then the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. And then death and Hades were cast in to the lake of fire, and this is the second death. That's the completeness of the victory that we see prophesied here when, the, when God's enemies are finally under his, his feet 
And we see that beautiful prophecy. And again, it's quoted in the New Testament in Matthew 22. You know, the religious leaders were always trying to trap Jesus, right? Trap him in his words in order really to find a reason to kill him. You know, so they tried to trap him so many times. One of those times revolved around this particular verse. In, in verses 41 through 46 of Matthew 22, it says, While the Pharisees were gathered, gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. And of course we know that Jesus was referred to as the son of David. And they said to him, How then does David in the spirit call him Lord? saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. See, Jesus sort of, they tried to trap him, and Jesus sort of turns it around on them as he does so often. And then in verse 45, he says, If David calls him Lord, then how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. So the significance of that one verse in this psalm shut the religious leaders up for good. They never tried to question Jesus again because he was able to give an answer and he referred to that to this psalm. So I, I love that. I love that these few verses are so significant. And I think for us, the lesson is, it doesn't matter how long or how short uh, you know, a chapter is or a psalm is or a proverb, uh, we just have to get as much as we can out of it. Sometimes the, f the fewest verses will give us the greatest insight into who God is. So then we see in verses 2 and 3, The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties, in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. So we see here, continue, we continue to see the psalmist here uh, reveal the deity of Christ and his power. The Messiah will show his power through the faith of the church and how, and how he works through us, not in the keeping of the law. See, the, the distinguishing word here is your strength will come out of Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem. See, it's not from Mount Sinai where the law was given that, that the church will, will perform its work through, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but out of Zion, out of Jerusalem, the city of David. What he's saying here is that it's synonymous with Jesus working in us, in us, not through the law, but through the indwelling of the Spirit to those who believe by faith. The next aspect of the messianic nature of this psalm is a reference to his priesthood. It says in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, we're not going to get into the study of Melchizedek because that will take us the rest of the night and, and further. But, but suffice to say that we see Jesus here as his, with authority, as a high priest. And we saw him as king. And if you think about the culture of that time, 
and uh, no one really could make claim to both king and priest, but Jesus did. No human could claim both titles. So Jesus, because of his, of his line through David, claimed kingship. And then his lineage, according to the order of Melchizedek, he was able to have authority as priest. And you know, he is a priest. He is our great high priest. Because what does a priest do? He intercedes, right? He intercedes between God and the people. And Jesus, it says in the scriptures, is the mediator between God and man. And he also offered gifts and sacrifices as the priest did for the sins of the people. Jesus, of course, offered the greatest sacrifice. Jesus offered his life for the sins of the world. And so we see him fulfilling the duties of, the, of a priest. It says in, in Hebrews 5.1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he might offer both gifts and sacrifices for, sin, for sins. The difference here between a human priest and Jesus, our great high priest, is that human priests would die and need to be replaced. Jesus is a priest forever. It says there in verse 4, you are a priest forever. So he offered sacrifices once and for all, never to be done again. So if anyone tells you you need a priest to, inter, to be an intermediary between you and God or a, some religious man, tell them, no, Jesus already fulfilled that role and he is the only mediator between God and man. So then in verses 5 through 7, it says, The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink by the brook of the wayside. Therefore, for he shall lift up the head. So we see here the final judgment according to Jesus Christ and his righteousness. That final victory. You know, we think about all the wickedness in the world and, you know, all we have to do is turn the news on for five minutes and, and we can see that this world is full of evil. And one day God will put an end to all the wickedness in the world. You know, and sometimes we, we pray, God, do it now. But there are people he's waiting for, his, his, his patience and the fact that he's long-suffering just because of his grace. He wants more to be saved. It doesn't matter. It says there he'll, he'll execute kings in the day of his wrath and judge among the nations. You know, it doesn't matter if you're a common man or a king. If you're a powerful person, it doesn't matter. Jesus will call all men, all men, to make an account for their life in the final judgment. So we see that, we see really a beautiful picture of Jesus as Messiah, King, Priest, Redeemer in that, in that one uh, seven verses of that psalm. Uh, psalm 111, and here's where we start to get into some of our praise psalms. It's a praise psalm that invites us to praise God for His awesome work in creation, as well as his sovereign power and grace. 
We praise Him for all that He's done in our lives. We praise Him for all that He will do in our lives. And as other Psalms, it's written in what they call an acrostic style, meaning that each verse or part of a verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, the, the consonants. This one here, it's split in half. Each half verse begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so we see that there, are, there were patterns to some of the Psalms. One of the ideas that permeates this Psalm is that we can know God, and therefore we can appreciate His desire to relate to us. It's that personal intimacy that we see. You know, there are many religions that offer worship to an unknowable God. Christianity is different, where we have a personal relationship. We, we have a distinct picture of who God is from the pages of the Scripture. So we can know. We can know who we praise. We can know the one that we are worshiping. So in verse 1, it says, Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart in the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. So like what we do each time we get together, we praise the Lord in, uh, in the congregation. We, we, uh, we sing praises to Him. We worship Him. And uh, this psalm, this, the, the psalmist is inviting us to praise the Lord. And our worship is all-encompassing. You know, we should be worshiping Him with our whole heart. You know, we shouldn't, it shouldn't be that it's sort of, uh, you know, it's dead worship. It should be alive. It should be vibrant. Our worship should, should be with our whole being. And we should never be ashamed to worship the Lord. And if we consider worship in, in, uh, in music... You know, whether we have a great voice or not so good, God loves a joyful noise made unto Him, and it's really the matter of our hearts. So we should never be ashamed of that. Verses 2 through 4, it says, The works of the Lord are great, studied by all who have pleasure in them. His work is honorable and glorious, and His righteousness endures forever. He has made His wonderful works to be remembered, the Lord is gracious and full of compassion. So we see in verse 1 the encouragement, the invitation to praise the Lord, and we start to see now why, reasons why we should praise Him. We praise Him because of His works, and His works are great. And we as believers should take pleasure in the works of God, you know, because His works are always good, no matter what. And that should give us reason to praise Him. His work is honorable. And what that means is that it's decent. It's moral. It's upright. You know, God's got, God's got uh, you know, the moral high ground on, on everything. And so we need to praise Him for that. No matter what we or others may think, you know, sometimes people can attribute uh, immorality to God because of the wickedness that goes on in the world and what He allows. Or, you know, a personal uh, tragedy that happens in, in someone's life and, and then and not understand God's decency and morality and His uprightness. You know, but 
there, his ways are higher than our ways. His work is glorious, means they are never trivial or insignificant. You know, as much as time as we spend on trivial and insignificant things, God never does. All of his works are glorious. His works are memorable. You know, much of what we do will be forgotten, but what God does will endure forever. So consider his most memorable work in the work of salvation through his son, Jesus Christ. So because of his grace and compassion. You know, in Romans 5.8, it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how awesome is that work of salvation that we have through Jesus Christ? Verses 5 and 6, the psalmist goes on, He has given food to those who fear Him. He will be ever mindful of His covenant. He has declared to His people the power of His works in giving them the heritage of the nation. So continue to give reasons to praise Him because those who know Him and fear Him, He will provide for. And we should praise Him for that. The psalmist is specifically here talking about the nation of Israel and the covenant that he made with them. And although the nations that surround Israel, even to this day, continue to try to push them into the sea, God has preserved them. So we see that beautiful covenant and, again, a reason to praise the Lord because his promises are true. And he, he, never, he never goes back on his word. Again, reasons to praise him, that his covenants are true. And, you know, think about what he's done with the nation of Israel, bringing them back into the land after having no homeland for, for you know, s several hundreds of years, 1,900 years, and then bringing them back into the land so that he could fulfill that heritage of the land of Israel. You know, so we see God's faithfulness there. And then verses 7 through 9, the works of his hands are verity and justice. All his precepts are sure. They stand fast forever and ever and are done in truth and uprightness. He has sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Just in case anyone has a question regarding God's justice and fairness, the psalmist reminds us that everything he does is in truth and uprightness. And once something is, has been established by God, it cannot be broken. And I love that about my God. You know, so many things in this world are unsteady. We know we can trust and put our faith in Him. And then in verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding will have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. So this one verse, we kind of it sounds familiar. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, a good understanding have all those who do his commandments. So we've seen this verse repeated in different ways or even exactly this way several times in the Bible. Fear 
here is the word, is the Hebrew word yira, yira, which means respect, reverence, or piety. So we see here that the fear of the Lord is just is respect for who He is. You know, we just got through praising Him, given reasons to praise Him. Certainly, that would lend us to re, lead us to res, respect Him and show Him reverence. But just a few other verses, if you want to jot them down, I'm going to throw them up on the screen here too for you. A few other verses in the Bible that speak about the fear of the Lord and what, what goes along with that. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So see, it's almost exactly the same as, as this verse 10 here. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked will be shortened. A promise for those who, who fear and reverence God. Proverbs 14, 26 and 27. In the fear of the Lord, there is strong confidence and his children will have a place of refuge. Verse 27 says, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life to turn one away from the snares of death. So, and there are several others. So we see here that the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, there are benefits that come with that. And there are also things that we see that we gain knowledge because of it, because we show him reverence and worship. Uh, Psalm 112, we should be able to get through at least this one. Psalm 112, another praise psalm, where sort of, it sort of takes over where the previous psalm leaves, leaves off, exhorting us to fear the Lord, since really it's for our own benefit to do so. So in verse 1, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. You see, our fear and reverence of God go hand in hand with our obedience to him. And because our obedience is, uh, is manifested in our awe of him and our reverence of him, he will bless us because of that. So we see that benefit that he gives those who obey his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on the earth, verse 2 says. The generation of the upright will be blessed. So again, more blessings that we receive from the Lord. And, you know, seen through his eyes, not our eyes. You know, mighty. His descendants will be mighty on the earth. But in whose eyes? In God's eyes not in the world's eyes. Those who delight in God and in obey, obeying His commandments consider it a pleasure to be under His instruction. And instead of the burden that man places upon other men, the Word of God, the word of God and His commands are light and satisfying. You know, the Apostle Paul wrote about the, uh, the yoke of bondage that the religious leaders would place upon people, you know, causing them to be 
more burdened than blessed. Jesus doesn't do that. Verses 3 and 4, it says, Wealth and riches will be in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. So those who fear God will have riches, but again, not in the world's eyes. Riches beyond gold and silver. Riches of a righteous life. You know, riches of the knowledge that they walk in grace and mercy and the compassion of God. Those are riches that we couldn't even count. And then in verses 5 through 9, it says, A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. So the psalmist here going on to describe a man who fears God, a man who gives reverence to the Lord, is a man who is charitable and thoughtful regarding his relationships, thoughtful regarding his business dealings and his home life and his family. So we see here that God, again, where it said the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, the knowledge and wisdom we receive from the Lord in running of the affairs of our life because we fear Him and we're obedient to Him. We know how to, how to handle our families. We know how to handle relationships. He gives us that wisdom and knowledge. And so we see, again, that the benefits of being obedient to the Lord. The, the wicked will see it, verse 10, and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked will perish. So, you know, God will bless those who honor him, and it'll kind of be an irritation to the wicked, to those who don't believe. You know, we'll be blessed, and many times, you know, the wicked will, uh, will uh, sometimes they'll hate Christians because of it, you know, because God is blessing us. And so, uh, but it's, it's there in the scriptures. The ones, the ones who fear God, uh, he, he will bless. Um, I think we can get through at least one, one more. Psalm 113. Another praise psalm, similar to the others in that there's encouragement to uh, believers to praise the Lord, uh, reasons to praise Him, and words that we might use to praise Him. And... If you notice in these psalms, you'll hear some of the words that we use in some of our worship songs and in our hymns. You'll start to become familiar. You'll, you'll say, oh yeah, I, I, we've sung that. And so these are meant to be praise songs, and um, many people over the centuries have put them to music. So we see that. Uh, in verse 1, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. So three times we see the encouragement and invitation to praise. To praise, uh, goes, uh, the invitation goes out to all the servants of the Lord. And who is that? 
It's all believers. You know, the Apostle Paul called himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Someone who willingly gives up their life to be used by someone else. We should be willingly giving up our, our lives to be used of the Lord for His kingdom and for His glory. So, and every time we serve others, we serve the Lord. As it says in Matthew 25, you know, when we visit those who were in prison, when we, when we clothe someone, when we give food to the hungry, we do that to the Lord. We bless the Lord. So in all of those things, we're serving others, we're serving God. And, those, and we are the ones as servants of the Lord who should be praising Him. Verses 2 and 3, Blessed is the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. So the awesome thing about praising God here and now is that it's sort of preparation, rehearsal for all of eternity when we'll be praising Him forevermore. And each and every day on this side of eternity and on the other, we'll be worshiping Him. Verses 4 through 9, The Lord is high above all the nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles Himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that He may seat Him with princes, with the princes of the people. He grants the barren woman a home, like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. We praise Him because He's above every human ruler who ever was. The greatest of all human rulers, God is higher than. And whoever may think they're something, they become humbled in His sight. When we compare anyone to God, they come up lacking. And then we see the, the uh, exaltation of God to dwell in heaven with the humbling of God to behold the things of the earth. He humbled himself to care for those who in need. You know, it says in, in Philippians, Jesus humbled himself and became a man and suffered that death of the cross. So we see God will humble himself to relate to us, but he also will humble those who, is, who exalt themselves. And he'll exalt those who humble themselves. It's that, it's, it's that odd type of dichotomy that we see in God's economy where, where as opposed to the world who says you need to push yourself and you need to, to put yourself out front, God sees the humble and he'll exalt you. And I love that about, about the Lord. We're going to go into Psalm 114, a psalm of exaltation to the Lord for His control over all of nature. And it's, this psalm tells a story in these few verses, celebrates the coming forth of God's anointed Messiah, Jesus Christ. And because of God's mercy toward the Jews in the Exodus and in the Passover, the lineage with, which brought forth Jesus continued on. So 
Again, we acknowledge God's power and grace in what he did in the nation and also in what he does in, in, sa in saving us. Remember, because of our trust in Jesus Christ, we have passed over death into life, just as the Israel, Israelites did back then. So in verses 1 and 2, when Israel went out of Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of a strange language, Judah became his sanctuary and Israel his dominion. So God delivered the Israelites from captivity for their own good and for his glory. His intention was for them to worship and to serve him. And he established that special relationship that, that he had with the, Jew, the Jewish nation, his chosen people. Not because they were necessarily anything special, because for, think about his plan of salvation for the whole world. It would come out of that nation. It says in Hosea 11.1, 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So we see God had a plan all, all along. The fulfillment of that prophecy in Hosea, it's a parallel passage to this verse in Psalm 114, and we see the fulfillment in Matthew and the other Gospels, the account of when Mary and Joseph heard from God and they took the child Jesus to Egypt to escape the slaughter of the babies by Herod, and then bring him back into the land. So we see God's hand upon that whole situation. And then in verses 3 through 8, we, the sea saw it and fled. Jordan turned back. The mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back? O mountains, that you skipped like rams, O little hills like lambs. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob, who turned the rock into a pool of water and the flint into a fountain of water. So we see here the history account of the parting of the Red Sea, the parting of the Jordan River, these miracles that were designed to show the world who God was. And who was in charge of all of nature? And then uh, I love the sort of the subtle sarcasm in verses 5 and 6. The psalmist asks, asks What ails you, O sea, that you fled? O Jordan, that you turned back? In other words, he's asking here Is there some natural cause for these miracles? Is there some some reason why maybe the Red Sea was upset that day, so it decided to part itself. Or the Jordan River was, was concerned about something, so it, so it receded. You know, the, the psalmist is sort of asking, there's no natural reasons for this. It's God. It's a miraculous thing. Don't ask what natural cause is at work. And it's like for us, when we see God's hand upon something in our life, some things that we may see as impossible, and we see God's hand upon them, we shouldn't ask other than just to give him the glory and give him the credit for what's been done. As we see God's hand upon people, as we see people being healed, as we see the growth 
of the church. Think about the miracle of the growth of the church in the face of persecution throughout the ages. And the Israelites' wilderness experience became an opportunity for God to show his power. So God wants to do miracles in each and every one of our lives. And when those things happen, we need to just give him all the glory that's due him. You know, we see that in that last verse where they turned the rock into a pool. Jesus turned the rock into a pool of water. Remember when they were thirsting in the wilderness and they were to strike the rock and God would bring forth water. Jesus has become our fountain of living waters. You know, the, 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 the waters of grace and forgiveness and mercy that we receive from Jesus Christ. And, and we see that, and that is truly a miracle. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.